Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week two co-authors of the wonderful book just come out called The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World by Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro. Ona Hathaway is the Gerard C. and Bernice Latrobe Smith Professor of International Law at Yale Law School and the director of the Center for Global Legal Challenges. Scott Shapiro is the Charles F. Southmaid, I hope I've got his name right, professor of law and professor of philosophy at Yale Law School and the director of the Center for Law and Philosophy. Uh, Scott and Ona, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you on here. It's wonderful that you've produced this book, principally about, though it's wide-ranging and I highly recommend it, principally about the Kellogg-Briand Pact. What was that for people who who haven't read my books and uh, haven't managed to find out? Well, uh, thanks. This is Scott, and I'll I'll, uh, try to address that. I I would say that um, it's it's so wonderful to be on your show. I mean, Right now, the th- we're like the three greatest fans of the Kellogg Bray Impact in the world are are all probably <laughs> so. Yes, so. the book "The Internationalist" that Owen and I wrote uh, is largely about the origins of the modern international order, um, about the the people who built it, which we call the internationalists, and why, despite its uh, many imperfections, it's crucial that it be defended um, now, perhaps more than ever. The central argument of the book is that the origins of the modern world order can be traced to a specific date, August 27, 1928, when the leaders of the great nations assembled in Paris to outlaw war. Now, the treaty that was signed on that date, um, often called the Kellogg-Briand Pact, uh, is very short and simple. Um, it states, and I'm going to read uh, the, the, the main clause because it's, it's so short, uh, the high contracting parties solemnly declare in the names of their respective peoples that they condemn recourse to war for the solution of international controversies and renounce it as an instrument of national policy in their relation with one another. In short, uh, what the Kellogg-Briand Pact was, uh, did was outlaw war. Now, as you can imagine, uh, the pact has either been forgotten or treated as a laughingstock and... Um, confession that we, when Owen and I taught international law, yeah, we also treated it that way, though I should point out, um, uh, and probably your listeners know, you are one of the rare exceptions, David, who took it seriously in your in your terrific book, The, the Day the World Outlawed War. Um, the reason um, is that it just seemed absurd to think you could end war through a piece of paper. Uh, But in the course of our research, we discovered something that we didn't expect. Far from being ridiculous, the pact was really transformative. Um, uh, It was like a hinge in history when one world order ended and something entirely new began. Uh, Before 1928, war was a legitimate tool of statecraft. Uh, It was the way in which states enforced their rights against one another. Um, And what we discovered, to our astonishment is that, um, is that uh, war before 1928 was legal, but economic sanctions were illegal. Uh, after 1928, uh, that flipped. War became illegitimate because of the pact, and indeed criminal. And now economic sanctions are the standard way in which international law is enforced. 
So in, in short, the book is about the seismic shift from one world to another, and we tell that uh, through the story of the internationalists, that is the people who fought to outlaw war. It, it's Thank you, Scott. It seems to me like an incredibly unfair standard, no matter how much good the, the pact did, and I want to get into that deeply, but, uh, it, you know, we have laws on everything, and when you have a law against drunk driving, nobody throws out the law because somebody drives drunk and says, oh, that law didn't work, and nobody says, oh, the law alone was supposed to eliminate drunk driving, ha, 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 and, and do away with any educational programs and treating addiction and so forth. I mean, it seems seems like the Kellogg-Briand Pact is the only law I've ever heard of that's held to this standard, that if it's ever violated, then it's a laughing stock and no good as a law. I, I, this is Ona. I, I just want to say I think that's such an important point, um, and it's one that so often gets lost in the picture. Um, the key point isn't whether one can point to exceptions, but whether you can find um, whether, in fact, the world changed as a result of of the law. Um, and in the book, we try to lay out the case for why we think it really did make an important difference in the world. Um, and I think, you know, this is this is often an argument made against international law, um, but especially against the Calabrian Pact. Um, and I think the fact that it's so obvious that World War II follows the pact um, is perhaps one of the most uh, glaring reasons that people point to for thinking that uh, that the pact was ineffectual. But what we try to argue is that it's not a sign that it was ineffectual, but that there was still much more work to be done to make its promise a real one. Um, and so a lot of what we try to do is tell the story of the people who tried to not only create the pact, um, and uh, but then to take the promise of the pact and make it actually work. Um, and that took peace activists, that took politicians, that took lawyers, that took a lot of people working together over the course of many years and decades and even continuing today to make that promise really, uh, to make that one a realized promise, not just, uh, not just a piece of paper. And, and who was uh, Salmon Oliver Levinson, the man behind the, the movement for outlawry, the movement to outlaw war? I, I'm afraid most people have, have never heard his name. Well, um, Sam and Levinson is, is perhaps one of the, my favorite characters that we discovered in the course of writing this book. Um, he's someone I'd never heard of before. Um, I know you had, um, but there are not very many of us uh, who, who, in fact, had read about or even knew uh, that Sam and Levinson existed. And, and we very quickly realized that he was an important person in this story, um, despite the fact that he's been all but forgotten. And he was a bankruptcy lawyer in Chicago who really had had almost nothing to do with international affairs throughout his entire career. Um, but uh, after, during and, and uh, after World War I, he was um, persuaded and convinced um, that uh, really the problem was that war was legal. And he decided to devote himself to the effort to outlaw war. And what's so interesting about him, and we read a lot of his papers, um, a lot of his personal letters, read a lot about him um, and his life, is that he, he was kind of this ordinary guy um, who got this very powerful idea, which is the way to deal with the scourge of war was to start by outlawing war. And he began developing these ideas in conversation with 
uh, Dewey, among other people, you know, really influential scholars. Um, but he he was really just sitting there on his own, kind of thinking this through, and then trying to bring in others to help him kind of develop his thoughts. And then he reached out to peace activists. He worked um, with a variety of groups, particularly women's peace groups, but peace groups all around the nation. He founded his own uh, non-governmental organization, the American Committee for the Outlawry of War. He um, worked with politicians to get them interested in the idea. And he just, he pursued this idea with a kind of single-mindedness that I think probably seemed quixotic and and maybe a little irrational at the time. Um, But the truth is that that's what it took to make the pact happen. And I find him a really powerful character precisely because in many ways he's a lot like an ordinary person you know who's not who doesn't have a position of power but but who has this great idea and and has the passion and willingness to do what it took to to make it actually become something. We're speaking with Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro. The book is The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World. Uh, Scott, what, what good did it do or has it done so far? What, uh, what changed in 1928? Um, well, uh, so to understand how this piece of paper outlawing war uh, changed uh, the way that states behaved, I think it's helpful uh, to kind of go back to the time before um, war had been outlawed. That is, um, in the book, we start in in the year 1603, um, but we we cover um, roughly four centuries. Before, Before 1928, war was legal in the sense that war was the legitimate that is the legal way and believed to be the moral way in which states as a last resort could have their rights enforced. If, they, if one of their rights had been violated, let's say um, not only if they had been attacked, but if they had loaned money and that money was not paid back or their property or ships had been damaged or there was some fight over inheritance States had the legal right to go to war as a last resort under the theory that the states, since there's no, world, there's no world government, they have no one else to appeal to, so they have to take the law into their own hands. And because they had the legal right to wage war, the, um, the international law gave them all these other rights as well. So they had the right of conquest, they had the right to... Um, to exercise sovereignty over the territory they seized in war. Uh, Their behavior was immune to criminal prosecution, no matter how many people they killed, Um, no matter how much they they took, they destroyed, they could not be prosecuted. Um, Incredibly, economic sanctions by, by neutral countries, that was also illegal. The thought being that since war is the legal way in which states resolve their disputes, any neutral country that played favorites was interfering with the system. And so economic sanctions of the uh, form that are routine today, before 1928, uh, were illegal and acts of war. Um, When the nations of the world 
got together and signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact, uh, the many states, diplomats, lawyers, began to realize that the rights that surrounded uh, the right to wage war conquest, um, the prohibition against economic sanctions, the uh, immunity to prosecution for waging war, all that had to change. And as a result, after 1928, um, and then um, solidified in 1945 after, uh, after the war, um, war not only was viewed to be illegal and criminal, but all the rules which had supported the uh, legitimacy of war changed. And so one of the things we show in the book through a very large empirical study of all the territorial acquisitions uh, from 1816 to the present, that after 1928, uh, conquests fell enormously. Um, the ones that um, conquests which have, uh, have, have uh, stuck have actually fallen 95%. Um, before 1928, on average, 11 Crimeas a year were um, conquered. After 1928, um, that number has fallen 95%. Um, and, of course, waging uh, aggressive war is now uh, an international crime, and economic sanctions are the standard way in which states... Uh, enforce uh, international law and are not considered acts of war anymore. Probably the majority of those conquests uh, were at least different from Crimea in that uh, they didn't have public votes to be conquered. But uh, I I think you also in the book, uh, Scott or Ona, whoever wants to speak to this, you talk about changes in terms of the number of nations on earth and their size and the uh, practice of colonialization, of, of, of turning nations into colonies. How did all these things change? I'll take that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this was one of the most interesting um, findings for us. So I've been dimly aware that the number of states had gone up uh, since World War II. But, in fact, when we looked into it, we realized the number of states has gone up radically since World War II. So when uh, we tell the story in the book that um, when they were trying to design the General Assembly um, building and... They asked a famous international lawyer, Oscar Schachter, you know, how many states should we assume are going to eventually join the United Nations? And he said, well, you know, if you make room for 80, that's going to be more than enough, because at the time there were 60 nations, roughly 60 nations in total in the world, and he figured, well, it would grow a little bit. Um, That number was gobbled up very quickly. Um, We now have 193 members of the United Nations, uh, by some counts, 212 uh, sovereign entities in the world. Um, so the number has grown in a, a huge amount. And one of the questions we asked in the book is why? Well, one reason we think um, that uh, this might have happened is that once states no longer have to fear being conquered, um, being small is actually okay. You know, if you're, if you're a small, resource-rich country in a world in which war is legal, that's a pretty dangerous position to be in because it's very difficult to actually defend yourself from larger states. You're a very attractive target, um, and the chances of you being conquered and taken over um, are pretty high. 
But in a world um, where war is no longer legal and you have a United Nations charter that says so, um, it's actually okay to be smaller. Um, we have the decolonization period, of course, as well, and that's both a result of, I think, two factors, and we talk a bit about this in the book. You know, one is a desire for self-determination, which, of course, it pre-existed this period. These, these colonies always wanted to, uh, uh, to govern themselves, um, uh, but the Allies had made this part of their rallying cry in World War II, so it became very hard to resist decolonization or calls for decolonization um, after World War II. Um, but at the same time, it's also the case that colonies um, that existed when war was legal, you know, being being independent wasn't necessarily such a great thing because if war was legal and you had lots of good resources and you weren't particularly well suited to defending it, then being independent might actually make you very vulnerable. Um, and so that was offered some disincentive to states to to become independent. And so once you have a world where war is no longer legal, it changes the calculus a bit, um, and it opens up the door for uh, regions and territories that have probably always desired um, governing themselves to actually do so without being fearful that they may be gobbled up by their neighbor or by another state um, as a result. And so we think that that's at least a partial explanation for this, but otherwise seems like a very puzzling change in the world. Yeah, this is what I love about this book, The Internationalists uh, by our guests, Sona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro, is that it shows the remarkable things that this treaty actually accomplished that, uh, as you've said, is is regularly mocked when it's heard about or mentioned at all. Um, but when I go back and, and read uh, things that Salmon Levinson wrote and how the outlawists of the day back in the 1920s uh, talked, um, I'm even more inspired because they seem to have a wisdom that said, we're going to do away with the entire institution of war, uh, including good wars, including humanitarian wars, including defensive wars. We didn't do away with aggressive dueling and keep defensive dueling. We got rid of the whole institution of dueling as barbaric and we moved beyond it. And they wanted to do that with war. Whereas very quickly after World War II and ever since, the, the talk has been about banning aggressive war and allowing certain types of wars, uh, allowing defensive wars and allowing uh, you know, wars that are UN authorized or that one imagines might have been UN authorized. What do you, what do you make of the sort of, of wisdom that I see in the outlawists, uh, Scott or, or Ona? Uh, am I now being... Uh, naive and ridiculous? Well, I might say a very brief word in response to that, and then Scott might want to jump in as well. Now, I think that's such an important point, and I think um, what's key, and one thing that we discovered, um, again, another thing that we discovered in the course of writing the book, is that the understanding of war that, that um, the outlawist was rejecting was a view of war as a tool of justice. So war was not seen as this kind of terrible scourge, although, of course, it was partially seen as a terrible scourge. But legally, it was seen as a tool of justice. It was a way in which states, when they were wronged, could turn around and right that wrong. And so the thought was, well, states can't go to court when there's a, you know, when something is taken from them or when some damage is done to them or when they're otherwise wronged. Um, and so, well, what are their alternatives? Well, of course, they can engage in diplomatic interaction and try and resolve it. But if they can't resolve it, well, then 
they go to war. Um, and the first part of the book is really devoted to describing that world. And so what the outlawry movement was about was about rejecting all of that. Um, it was about not just rejecting wars that were um, just driven by greed, because, of course, wars driven purely by greed were, were illegal all along. Um, it was about rejecting all the wars. Now, the Kellogg-Brand Pact did not include an exception for defense, although, as you know well, you know, Kellogg himself testified that certain kinds of defense, of course, would be okay if you're attacked. Of course, you can defend yourself. We're not going to prevent that. But they were very mindful of the fact that if they created a, a exception, that that exception was going to quickly uh, swallow the rule. Um, and they were mindful that the difference between defensive and aggressive wars can be very quickly blurred. And so they very intentionally kept it simple and straightforward to just say, we're outlawing war. Um, we're not going to allow states to use war as a tool of national policy. Um, and they're going to have to find another way of resolving their disputes. Um, and that was very much intentional. And I think that's a vision that we should be um, inspired by. I couldn't agree more. Um, so the, the other question that co comes to my mind when I read this book, which again, I highly recommend that everyone get, it's just out, the internationalists, uh, is that in the book, it seems that the current threats to the new uh, world order of, of the illegality of war come from Russia and China and ISIS. Uh, and yet when I look around the world that I live in, I see the United States as far and away the top spender on war, the top dealer of weapons, owner of at least 95% of the war bases that are in foreign countries, uh, half a dozen wars going at any time, Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and Libya, you know, devastated. The, the uh, you know, these are not UN authorized wars or defensive wars, at least in an ordinary sense of defensive. Uh, and and, you know, threatening to nuke North Korea. Uh, how, how do we have a conversation about ending war and not address the overwhelming dominant war maker on the planet? So um, let, me, uh, let me address, address that. Um, so we um, set out at the end of the book uh, uh, in an epilogue a number of threats that we see to the New World Order, among them <clears throat> being annexation of Crimea, um, the uh, uh, Chinese um, uh, uh, reclamations um, in the South China Sea that are the building up of um, little tiny rocks into islands and claiming uh, sovereignty over it, uh, uh, ISIS and its... Um, and it's um, uh, the radical um, jihadi um, uh, ideology of rejecting uh, any kind of man-made borders, uh, including the modern sovereign state. But we also um, are very concerned, and we, we were very clear at the end, that we're really uh, worried about the expansion of the definition of self-defense, which the United States has um, has employed um, through through the war on terror, the so-called war on terror, and um, the uh, the um, asserted uh, right of um, humanitarian intervention outside of the 
UN Security Council framework. Um, these are uh, actions taken by the United States, which we think are um, corrosive to the rules. Now, it is, of course, um, I mean, really lamentable that uh, that uh, the United States um, is enmeshed in these forever wars in the Middle East, um, and it it is um, it's um, something that we very much hope will end. It's hard to, um, I mean, I don't think one needs to be um, uh, uh, particularly anti-war to think that um, threatening nuclear uh, nuclear war with Korea is a bad idea. Um, many people who are not particularly anti-war also think that doubling down in Afghanistan is a very bad idea. Um, in retrospect, even people who are not particularly anti-war think that the United States invasion of Iraq in 2003 was a bad idea. So I, our particular um, intervention, so to so speak, in the debate would not be about um, interventions um, that have clearly failed as a matter of policy and a matter of morality, um, but rather the claims made on behalf of, of, of uh, uh, significant superpowers about the, what the rules should be. Um, and that's the intervention we were making in the book. Yeah, uh, less than two minutes left. Uh, do, do you think there is a, a power in holding up the Kellogg-Briand Pact at this point and saying, hey, look, you imagine, you meaning the general public, you imagine that a lot of these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and Pakistan and so forth are, are somehow legal under the, the loopholes that are in the UN Charter. But here's a law from 1928, still on the books, that says war is illegal, plain and simple. Uh, shouldn't we try to get to that standard? Is there, a, is there a value in holding this up, not just as something that changed the world in 1928, but as something that should change the world in 2017? I would add, I would say yes. Um, a, a important point of the book is to cause people to think carefully about what the central principles are of our international legal system. And one of the central arguments we're making here is that the prohibition on war is not just an afterthought or not just one rule among many, but is the central organizing principle of the modern international legal order. And that if you throw that out or you ignore it, that you risk putting everything else that you care deeply about at risk. And in many ways, what we're trying to do is to go back by going back to 1928 and show that that's the, those are the ideas that, that the UN Charter is trying to build on and the principles that the modern legal order um, really rests on to try and show how central that idea really is um, to the way in which the world uh, works today, um, to the availability of free trade, for instance, um, yeah. and, um, and many of the other things that we deeply value, the ability to, the, the core um, principles of Nuremberg, the prohibition on aggression, the crime of aggression. So a lot of these central ideas rest on the 
prohibition of war, which um, is grounded in the Kelly-Briand Pact and then is only later cemented and reaffirmed um, in Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. And so... Uh, or, or it may have been weakened uh, in the UN Charter, depending on your perspective. The book is wonderful. I wish we could go on for hours, Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro. Thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, David. We, le- we, we really enjoyed ourselves. Yes, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.